0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Federal employees have fewer than 75 days to get vaccinated. The White House says it will require all federal workers to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. A new executive order calls it essential for government employees to protect themselves and avoid the spread of the virus. President Biden also signed a second order that includes federal contractors. A forthcoming sustainability plan from the Biden administration will examine disclosures of greenhouse gas emissions from suppliers and policies to mitigate climate-related financial risks. The plan is the result of an executive order President Biden signed in May. That order directed the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council to require large federal suppliers to publicly disclose greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risk. The order also required setting science-based reduction targets. One out of every three women in the Air Force or Space Force report experiencing sexual harassment during their military career, according to those who responded to an Inspector General survey. The investigation is part of the Air Force's research into race and gender inequality in its ranks. The IG's first report, released last year, looked at racial disparities and focused on African-American service members. Conclusions are based on more than 100,000 survey responses from airmen and guardians and follow-up discussion sessions. Created 20 years ago in the wake of the 9 11 terrorist attacks, the Department of Homeland Security tackles an assortment of threats to the nation. Ellen Gilmer, a senior reporter at Bloomberg Government, asked this question of the current and former DHS leaders Are
0: we safer now?
1: Ellen, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me. So
1: you talked to um, Secretaries Chertoff, Napolitano, um, Johnson, Wolf, and Mayorkas. What were what, was there a common theme as to what they said to you?
0: The big question we had was uh, this, this broad, are we safer after 9 And the response we kept getting was, Yes, in some ways. No, in other ways. You know, yes, we are safer from a broad, mass-scale terrorist attack, the type of which we saw on 9/11. Uh, aviation security is much safer. Intelligence sharing, uh, cooperation among agencies is much better. Uh, however, we have all of these new threats, and these new th- threats are constantly cropping up. We've got domestic extremists, cybersecurity. It's just a, a constantly changing, dynamic environment.
1: What I thought was interesting was they weren't even, um, you know, they didn't even agree on what the biggest threat to the country was. You know, you had Jay Johnson, who was during the Obama administration saying it's white nationalism. And then Wolf, who was during the Trump administration saying that's absurd, it's the people coming across the border
0: there there is some disagreement on that and we have heard from jay johnson like you said he is worried about white supremacy which is fueling domestic extremism in the u.s we've heard the same thing from secretary mayorkas the current homeland security secretary in the biden administration that Uh, domestic extremism is the deadliest terrorism threat facing the U.S. today. We see that in shootings at churches, synagogues, nightclubs, uh, January 6th, uh, attack on the Capitol. And so that's a big priority for the Biden administration. But you're right, there is an agreement on whether that is the primary threat, especially because it is constantly changing.
1: You know, Secretary Chertoff mentioned Afghanistan, and he said that now that terror groups have access to territory. They can train, they can test weapons, they can have labs for biological and chemical weapons. Is DHS prepared for that threat?
0: It's, it's really watching that threat carefully. Um, and secretary mayorkas says you know they are prepared the department was created in the wake of 9 11 specifically oriented around that kind of threat so they do have all that infrastructure for a uh, foreign terrorist group threat and what uh former secretary chertoff and others have said is we don't really know quite what to expect from afghanistan at this point and with how the taliban governs and what groups might be able to gain a footing there whether it's al-qaeda or isis-k or something we haven't heard of yet you know uh, we're not sure how that's going to play out but it is something they're watching really closely and definitely the kind of information sharing uh, and, and coordination among the agencies like we mentioned that is you know leaps and bounds from where it was on 9 11.
1: You know, Secretary Napolitano said this about DHS. She said, quote, They need to avoid the temptation to be just the department of the southwest border. Is immigration and and the flow coming across the border really taking up a lot of bandwidth for DHS?
0: Definitely. It takes up tons of bandwidth. You can see it just in uh, the way we cover the agency. It really dominates the headlines because there's just constant action on that front. Um, So border security and immigration issues, they're always going to be big issues for DHS, but I don't think You know, the leaders of DHS may be expected to become the face of federal immigration policy over the past couple of administrations. Um, So it really has become almost an all consuming uh, uh, area. And I I think what Secretary Napolitano was saying is that, you know, that it is really important. We've got to spend our resources and put our focus there, but not at the expense of our counterterrorism work, our other work that DHS does on pandemic response climate change resilience, all manner of other other issues they have on their plate.
1: I wonder if you think it's worth it. I mean, all that time and energy spent when I mean, is that really a big threat to to us? I mean, I setting aside immigration policy, that's a whole different issue, but does it make sense that DHS is the one that is handling immigration? What do you think?
0: Well I think that's that's just an issue that that is gonna be hotly debated on Capitol Hill and otherwise. Uh so I couldn't say for sure, uh, but certainly there are threats that the U.S. has to worry about uh, coming from people who, enter our, who cross our borders, whether it's by land or, or by air. Um, so it, it makes sense in that way for DHS to be handling it. There are proposals out there to spin off the immigration functions of the agency and, and put that in its own department or put it under a different department.
1: You know, Secretary Napolitano also said that um, DHS leaders need to be agile and adapt. How well have they done that over the past 20 years?
0: Ooh, that's hard to say. Uh, It is, you really can't be um, overstated how important it is for them to be able to do that because of the way the threats change. Like we talked about one day, the biggest threat might be Al Qaeda, the next day it's cybersecurity um, or a a deadly pandemic. And uh, the agency is huge. Um, I mean, to break this down, like this agency has TSA, FEMA, some people forget FEMA is part of DHS. You know, you have counter- counterterrorism functions, you have immigration agencies. The Coast Guard. The Coast Guard, the <laughs> Secret Service. Um, so it's <clears throat> this sprawling agency, and it's hard to turn its work and to turn its focus to the next emerging threat. And I think that's something they, they focus really hard on, but just structurally, when you have a department that's that big and all of those different sub-agencies with all these different personalities, it's, it's a challenge.
1: All right, we're going to take a a pause right here, but we're going to come back and continue our discussion, okay? Coming next, more of my conversation with Ellen Gilmer, straight ahead on Government Matters, the future of DHS, and where the agency is going from here. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, a big question to ask is if we are any safer now than we were then as a result of creating DHS. Asking that question is Ellen Gilmer. She's a senior reporter at Bloomberg Government. She spoke with five current and former DHS leaders about their reflections on the department. Ellen, um, you mentioned this a little bit in our previous um, segment about different kinds of threats. There's now cyber attacks. There's disinformation. Um, there could be the breakdown of law and order as a result of a climate catastrophe. Is DHS ready for that? Do they have the resources to handle those kinds of threats?
0: I think on the cyber security front in particular, there is always room for more. DHS will say there, there is always room for more. And Congress has been pretty enthusiastic about funding that work. Uh, A couple of years ago, they created within DHS an agency called CISA, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security, that's focused on that issue. And members of Congress are increasingly, you know, trying to boost CISA's budget and make sure we have enough for that. So on that front, I think you are seeing the department ask for what it needs and generally Congress is providing the department with what it needs on cybersecurity. On other issues, it gets more complicated because, uh, you know, different priorities are in competition and you might have uh, members of congress who are the ones who are appropriating this money you know who really want to focus on border security or they really want to focus on on other issues and that's a constant battle on capitol hill and so i think on some issues the current dhs has its own priorities and they would say we do want more money for climate change resilience or something that maybe wasn't as much of a focus uh, previously
1: i want to ask you about the the shift from kind of foreign terrorists to domestic terrorists. How did DHS handle that, um, and, and did they do it effectively?
0: Well, it's really interesting because uh, Jay Johnson, one of the uh, DHS secretaries during the Obama administration, kind of described how it was this evolution from foreign terrorist groups to people in the u.s who were inspired by foreign terrorist groups and now the primary concern is uh, domestic extremists who are acting on their own hateful ideologies um, that in a lot of cases are kind of promoted by disinformation and misinformation online and i think when uh when the department moved its kind of focus that the biggest threat from foreign terrorist groups to those people in the u.s who were inspired by foreign groups they tried to uh kind of put federal law enforcement and other federal resources inside communities and what it created was a lot of racial and religious profiling a lot of mistrust between communities and the federal government so what the biden administration has said is that instead of that instead of doing that same approach Uh, for domestic extremism, they're going to try to empower and resource local communities to do that themselves, to kind of you know, identify and raise a red flag for anybody in their midst who might be moved to violent action. And I think it's a little too soon to tell how that's gonna work out. Um, The FBI and DHS released this big uh, plan to combat domestic extremism just a few months ago. So we're kind of in the early stages of seeing how that goes.
1: Uh, Secretary Johnson said this. He said, if I were king and I'm not, I would decree a consolidation of all of the federal law enforcement agencies into one department of public safety modeled after the way they do things in other countries. That's an interesting thought. What what do you think
0: of that? It is interesting, and and some outside advocates have have pushed for that as well, because a lot of people don't know this, but DHS has more federal law enforcement uh, officers than any other agency, more than the Justice Department. um, Because you think about it, you have like uh, ICE officers are within DHS, um, among many other uh, enforcement officials. So, um, you see people pushing to, to move that federal law enforcement out because they think it just, for one thing, DHS is huge, it's kind of unwieldy, um, so it makes sense to just, um, to some people, to, to spin that off. Um, but for another thing, you know, law enforcement functions need a lot of oversight. And, uh, and it, that can be hard to do when you're working with such a huge department.
1: You know there have been calls to abolish the department is is that getting any real traction
0: not during the biden administration um and and similarly calls to abolish ice are are not something the biden administration is entertaining uh certainly you see that um from the advocacy community uh on the left, uh, on some of the left, but, uh, but that, that's not getting any traction right now. Um, I don't hear that from members of Congress for the most part. You sometimes hear abolish ICE, but most people agree that the department as a whole needs to stay intact.
1: So current DHS Secretary Mayorkas has said that he's open to recommendations to improve DHS. If you had to distill all the advice that you heard from those previous secretaries and offer him advice, what would you tell him?
0: The, what we heard from the previous secretaries, I think, was to be nimble, that, that's kind of an abstract idea. Uh, part of what helps being nimble is having really good leadership team. Uh, there are still some positions within the Biden administration's Department of Homeland Security that are unfilled, either because the Senate hasn't confirmed a nominee or the White House hasn't announced a nominee yet. So there are some important positions, including the Office of Intelligence and Analysis, which is one of the offices in DHS that is keeping an eye on terrorism issues. It doesn't have even a nominee yet. So that's a big issue, getting your leadership team in place.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Ellen, for joining us. And maybe in another 20 years, we'll, we'll see how they did. Yeah, we'll
0: see. Thank you. <laughs>
1: You can find a link to Ellen's article at govmatters.tv resources. Coming next, a continuing resolution looks likely for the federal budget. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why both contractors and agencies should start preparing now. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The White House proposes supplemental funding in the billions to prepare for a continuing resolution. The likely CR will affect federal acquisition and contractors for fiscal 2022. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting. He's former chief acquisition officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Greg, welcome. Thanks, Mimi. So a continuing resolution just means that we're gonna continue at the current funding levels. Is that necessarily a bad thing?
2: Uh, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but how it's uh, appropriated and allocated can be because of the uncertainty it drives. Uh, but to a degree, we're back again to another continuing resolution. I think Congress has passed all the appropriations in four out of the last 40 years or so. I think the last full one was in the mid-90s when we had Cuba Gooding Jr. talking about show me the money. I wish they do a sequel and do show me the appropriations. The, the real issue is that uncertainty that pulls leadership and staff away to kind of work on the various options and methods because it's not just funding it last year, it's funding incrementally at last year. Well,
1: tell me a little bit more about that uncertainty and how it affects agencies and contractors. Sure.
2: So if your funding last year was $100 million, you don't get $100 million in October. You start to get in a portion of that. So maybe you get one twelfth of that or one tenth of that, and that's then allocated through. And you're trying to then plan on when does the CR end. And really as we've seen in the past, you only know how long a CR goes until it's over. And then you can tell how long it's been. So you have contracts in place that you're trying to fund and you have to start breaking those off into incremental several segments so that you can fund those and not have a gap in service for the American public.
1: So how likely is a government shutdown at this point?
2: Uh, I I think a government shutdown is unlikely, but it's going to be painful before we get there. And that pain is going to cause organizations to have to plan for it. They'll have to dust off their shutdown procedures, everything from what do you do with facility? If you're going to turn the facility off, actually turn the lights off in the facility. What do you do about people on travel? How do you recall them? How do you think about not just your staff essential and who's going to be furloughed? What happens with all the contracts and private industry partners and the role that they have in serving the American public? Which of those contracts can continue They were previously funded? Which ones need to be in a facility that's now going to be closed? I Maybe mean, one thing I think COVID has taught us, we can kind of decouple location and work. So I think that'll help us some in thinking about what can we do to preserve as much of the mission that we can if we do have a shutdown.
1: So even though a shutdown is really unlikely, because I don't think the White House or Congress wants to go that route, we're wasting all this time preparing for it anyway?
2: Right, it's a fire drill that you have to do because if you're caught short and there's a shutdown and you don't have a plan, it, it goes from bad to worse. Uh, but you're right, in many cases you're planning and counting on something and preparing for it, uh, hoping it doesn't happen, right? You're planning for the worst, hoping for the best.
1: So you were Chief Acquisition Officer at, at the VA until uh, 2017. During your time there, what was your experience with a CR, the continuing Resolution? Yes,
2: we had lots of CRs, potential shutdowns, shutdowns uh, while I was at the VA. And one of the big things we tried to do was bring in all the stakeholders and understand how can we mitigate the impact on providing service to our veterans. And that made us look at things like obligations and expenditures. A lot of times acquisition leaders will just look at obligations, but sometimes you have to look at both obligations and expenditures and you may find expenditures are lagging by many months from obligations, and that gives you some flexibility. You can de-obligate some money and then apply that to more pressing needs to cover during the CR or during the shutdown. But you got to be careful doing that. It's got to be the right appropriation. It can't be something uh, unexpired money. You don't want to de-obligate that, and you can't use it. And you also have to think about Anti-Deficiency Act violations. You don't want to be caught that a big contract action is coming up and you would be ready to award it and it's kind of on automatic but now with the CR you can't award it because you don't have access to your funding because again it's an apportioned amount of one-tenth or one-twelfth that you get not at all at one time.
1: So what do you recommend to contractors then to start doing right now in preparation for all this?
2: Uh, Contractors need to be reaching out to their government counterparts and to their contracting office representatives to the program office leadership to the procurement leadership and start that dialogue about how do we best move forward given both a CR and a potential for shutdown and start to understand those impacts and think what can they do that represents the best in the interest of taxpayers and our citizens but also represents the equities of the private industry companies that are partnering to deliver on mission.
1: Is there anything agencies can be doing to avoid that end of fiscal year crush that that always comes up? I mean we know it's coming up. Is there something that they can do to better plan for that.
2: They can. They need it. It's a little bit of a strategic approach, though, and you're right. It comes every year. I mean, the calendar is July, August, September. Alright, every year. Uh, One of the things that I've found that really strategically can work is to start to start to think about how to get off cycle of September. If you're looking to award a contract in September, don't make it a three year contract. Make it a three and a half year contract and let that last six months then move you into that springtime. Uh, You'll find things a lot more accommodating in the spring than they are in September. It's a struggle for industry and and government. But I think thinking through those timing issues to move you away from that, do a bridge contract, do an extension two or three months early, two or three months late, anything to move you out of that chaos would be very helpful. That
1: that sounds like a great idea, frankly. Greg, thanks so much, and happy end of fiscal year to you. (laughs)
2: Thank you. You too. Thanks.
1: If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv and tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us and get the latest updates and a behind the scenes look at our program.